and uh, we'll get to the text in just a couple of moments, but uh, I want us to open in a word of prayer, and then we will get started. Father, we are thankful for this day, and Lord, we are thankful uh, for your coming to this earth and uh, being what we uh, desperately needed you to be, that being our Savior, to be our Redeemer, uh, the only one who could reconcile the relationship between us and God. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. God, I pray that you would help us now as we spend these next few moments looking in your word. I pray that you'd help this to be a help and an encouragement uh, to your people. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, it was out of the book of Jeremiah that we watched as Scripture made plain and made clear that of all the things that God is, God is omnipotent meaning he is all-powerful, that there is nothing he cannot do. In fact, God himself asked the question, is anything too hard for me? And the obvious answer to that question is no, there is nothing too hard for God. And it's good that we be reminded of his omnipotence because there are times when we find ourselves in situations and that to us those situations are hard, they are overwhelming, they are things that bring about distress in our lives, and if we're not careful, we begin to assume that these things must also stress God and perplex Him. And we need to be reminded that no matter what we face, no matter what trial we go through, no matter what situations we're dealing with, God is able and God is capable. It's a good thing to be reminded that God is omnipotent. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at another aspect of who God is, one that is familiar to many of us, and I'm going to say several things, and, and the flow of this message may be a little bit different, but that's all right. I want us to think about this truth this morning, that the Scripture makes it clear that not only is God omnipotent, God is omniscient. God is omniscient. Did I already say that? God is omniscient, all right? Been out of the saddle, so I want to make sure that we're doing this right, okay? God is omniscient. What does that mean whenever I say to you that God is omniscient? It means this, that God is all-knowing. God knows everything. God knows absolutely everything. God is omniscient. Now, you could take that truth and you could begin to apply it in so many different ways, and I believe that in so many different ways, that truth is encouraging. It is a comfort to know that God knows everything. But this morning, I want to make it personal. I want to make it something that relates to you and I on a very real, what I hope to be a daily kind of basis and a daily kind of approach. God knows everything. He knows everything about us. And as you read through the scripture, much confirmation is given. David himself spoke of God's awareness of who he was and the direction that his life was going and the things that he was encountering. Job made it clear that God was aware of each step that he took and the direction that his life was taking, as it, or it was going. As you look into the New Testament, Christ himself made it clear that God is fully aware of the sparrows when they fall to the ground. 
And is he not much more aware of us and what is going on in our lives? The scripture says that the very hair of our heads are numbered. And so for God to keep track of all that, it proves that he is an all-knowing God who is mindful of what is going on in the lives of individuals. So that being said, if somebody were to say to you, who is God, we could say once more, as we've said in the past, we could say that God is omniscient. But again, to make that personal, what does that mean? Well, I want us to think about a couple of questions this morning. And if this seems a little bit odd or a little bit out of place, just stay with me. I promise you there's a point to this. This morning, I want to ask you a question. How many of us have ever heard the name Nancy Pelosi? Most of us have heard the name Nancy Pelosi, have we not? For those of you who may not know who Nancy Pelosi is, I'll just give you a quick background on her. She is a U.S. representative from the state of California. She was elected into office in 1987, and she has been a leading voice in the Democratic Party for quite some time. That is a very brief summary of Nancy Pelosi and who she is. So let me ask you this question as well. Who is Dana Roebacher? Who is Dana Roebacher? Now you may sit here this morning and say something like this. I don't know who she is. I don't know who Dana Roebacher is. Never heard the name. Don't know anything about her. Well, first of all, Dana is not a lady. Dana is a man, and he, too, has been a U.S. representative from the state of California since 1989, only two years less than Nancy Pelosi. He is a Republican from the state of California who has served for well over 20 years now. So if you think about that, here's what you see. We are very familiar with the name Nancy Pelosi, and when it, came to the, you know, when it comes to the name Dana Roebacher, most of us have no idea who he is, what he's about, or what he's accomplished. Let me ask you this. How many of us have ever heard the name Clark Gable? Have you ever heard the name Clark Gable? Most of us have. What, what is he most known for, at least to this day? A little movie entitled Gone with the Wind. It's one of the highest, or it is the highest, grossing films of all times when you allow for inflation. I learned that this week. Uh, it's a movie that won six Oscars. You'd have to be pretty young and pretty uninformed to have not at least heard the name Clark Gable. So let me ask you about this person. Who is Victor Fleming? You might say, well, uh, maybe he was an actor in the 1930s. No, Victor Fleming was actually Clark Gable's boss in Gone with the Wind. See, he was the director of the movie. He was the one who decided when a scene had been recorded properly and everything was good to go. So we know the name Clark Gable, but most of us would not have known the name Victor Fleming. Now, why am I bringing these names to you and why am I illustrating certain thoughts? Because here's what I want us to see, that... There are certain names in this world, and they seem to be household names. They seem to be names of people that most, if not everyone, has heard of. Most are familiar with, if they're not very well familiar with. And then you have people, and they have never been heard of at all. No one knows who they are or what they've accomplished. 
and yet obviously they existed. Well, the same principle would be true as you apply it to Scripture, would it not? So I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, think about this. If I were to say to you this morning the name Abraham, most of you could give me something of the life of Abraham because you're familiar with his life, correct? If I were to say the name this morning, Moses, you could give me some details about the life of Moses. If I were to say to you the name Noah, most of you could give me something about the life of Noah and what he accomplished. If I were to say David or Solomon or, or, or so many other people in the Old Testament, you could say, yeah, I know something about him. If I said, well, what about John the Baptist? What about Peter? What about James? What about John? What about the Apostle Paul? You would say, hey, I know those names. I know something about their lives. But if I gave you other names from Scripture, you might say something like this. Who in the world are they? Is that Old Testament or new? Are you telling me the truth? Did that name really exist or did you make that one up? Because there are many people in Scripture who are, who are somewhat identified, somewhat listed and yet you and I know nothing about them. So think about this and follow this pattern for just a few more moments. Consider the name Elijah. Is that a foreign name to most of us? No, it's not to most of us. Most of us are somewhat familiar with the name Elijah, and if we were to go around the room this morning and we were to say, okay, tell me something about the life of Elijah no doubt many different things would be said of him, correct? Correct. At some point, here is what someone would say, no doubt, if we spent time talking about the life of Elijah. Somebody would say this. He called fire down from heaven. There was that occasion and there was that time when he was going to contest the prophets of Baal. And, and what they were going to do is they were going to set up this altar and they were going to put this, this calf on the altar. And, and the challenge was going to be this. The prophets of Baal would cry out to their God and, and Elijah was going to cry out to his God. And whichever God answered by sending fire down from heaven, that would be the determining factor as to who the true God was and we know that the prophets of Baal were unable to call the fire down from heaven. And yet Elijah, with one short, fairly simple prayer, was able to see the fire come down and consume the offering, all the water that was about it, and the stones themselves. It was an amazing display of God's power. Amen. If we continued to talk about that story, someone may say something like this, that it was immediately after that Elijah ordered the death of the prophets of Baal. Do you remember this? Elijah ordered the deaths of the prophets of Baal because they were false teachers, obviously, there in the land of Israel. And as a result of that, we would also be familiar with this portion of Scripture, that when Jezebel heard of what Elijah had done, Jezebel was not real excited or thrilled of or about or for Elijah's actions. And so what did Jezebel vow to do? She vowed to kill Elijah. Now, we know this, and I just want us to think about this. Elijah has just called fire down from heaven. Something you and I have never done and will never do, most likely. I don't see that in my immediate future. 
Here is Elijah calling fire down from heaven. It has consumed an offering that was being presented unto the Lord. It's just been made known that God, Jehovah, is the true God of Israel, not Baal. And now a wicked woman by the name of Jezebel is angry. She is mad. She is bent out of shape. And what has she vowed to do? She has vowed to take the life of Elijah. And what does Elijah do? He runs and hides in fear. As a man, I'd like to think I wouldn't be fearful of a woman. But I know better. Because <laughs> I've gotten nervous at least. <laughs> Not just of Susie, but there are several ladies that make me nervous from time to time. So I don't want to be too hard on Elijah. Because several of us have been there where we've thought, man, she is a crazy lady. She may do exactly what she said she's going to do. So here is Jezebel who has vowed to take the life of Elijah. And what did Elijah do? He ran out of fear of this woman named Jezebel. So as we come to 1 Kings chapter 18, or 1 Kings chapter 19 rather, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse number 14, we have Elijah speaking to God. We have Elijah pouring out his heart and his soul and, and his feelings to God. And, and I trust that we know this, but I just want to say this very quickly, that there's nothing wrong with an individual ever pouring out their heart and their soul to God. It's appropriate. It's, it's acceptable. There's nothing wrong with it. And yet sometimes, if we're honest, here's what we know. Sometimes in the midst of the emotion, things get said that probably didn't need to be said. You know, we, we got carried away with our feelings. We got carried away with our emotions. And as we're pouring our hearts out to God, we say some things that yeah, didn't need to be said. Well, the same thing happened to Elijah. How do we know? Because in verse number 14, here's what he said to the Lord. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. Well, let me ask you something. If God is omniscient, don't you believe he already knew that? If God knows everything as we believe He does, not just from the story we're about to read, but so many other passages of Scripture, if God knows everything, then when Elijah declared his jealousy or his passion or his zeal for the Lord, the Lord God was already fully aware of it. But he says in verse number 14 that he was jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. So, Lord, you know that I've been jealous for you. And the Lord would say, yes, I know, I'm aware of this. And Elijah says, this is why I've been jealous, and this is why I've had the passion and the burden that I've had, because of everything that Israel has done. And the Lord would have been able to say, yes, Elijah, I know what's motivated the jealousy. I know what's motivated the passion. I know all these things. And then notice what Elijah said next, getting somewhat carried away with his feelings. He said, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. What did Elijah just declare? Lord, I am an endangered species. 
Lord, there is only one left who has not sold out. God, there is only one who has not compromised. God, there is only one who has not forsaken. God, there is only one who has not turned their back on you. God, there, there is only one. And guess who it is? That's right, God. It's me. I'm it. And God, they are seeking to take my life right now. Now, God's in heaven, obviously, right? And Elijah says, Lord, I've been jealous. Hey, I I know that, Elijah, for sure. I do. And God, you know why I've been jealous? Yes, yes, I'm aware of everything. You're right, I know why you've been jealous. And Lord, you know I'm it. I'm the only one. Uh, Time out, Elijah. You may not know everything. Right? You may have limited knowledge. You may not be aware of everything that's going on. Elijah, you may feel like you're the only one, but you're not the only one. Well, how do we know? Well, for most of us who know the story, we make our way down to verse number 18, and the Lord is responding to Elijah. And notice what it says in verse number 18. It says, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Now, what did Elijah truly believe he was? He truly believed he was the last person who had not compromised and sold out to the false prophet and to the false god of Baal. That's what he truly believed. And yet in verse number 18, here is what the Lord said, Elijah, there are 7,000 others, all of which they have not knelt one time and bowed to to the God of Baal, and neither has their mouth kissed him. Elijah, I want you to be aware of this. You are not alone. There are 7,000 others who are as committed and dedicated and faithful and as passionate and as jealous as you. You may feel like you're the only one, but you're not. There are many others who have been as faithful and as dedicated as you. So here's what we know, that in the land of Israel, there were at least 7,001 people who had not compromised who had not betrayed God. You understand this, right? 7,001, because you've got Elijah, who is the one, plus 7,000, pretty simple math, 7,001, who have not compromised. And how many do we know the names of? One. Following this? It's kind of like Nancy versus Dana, or Clark versus... forgot his name, Victor, okay? It's kind of that situation, right? Okay, we've got Elijah, one name that we know and that we're familiar with, and 7,000 people that we don't know anything about. We don't know their names at all, do we? No. 
There might have been some common names among those 7,000 for their day that we might guess and, and say, was that old Jehubababa? And, and you might say, oh, yeah, that, that was probably one of them. But we don't know, right? It would just be a guess. We don't know their names, but, but I, I would guess that within those 7,000, there were people from all walks of life, correct? Some who would have been young, some who would have been old, and everything in between. Certainly there would have been men as well as women, women as well as men. Certainly there were some who were educated, who were doing well for themselves. There may have been others who were not as educated, maybe not as affluent, whatever the situation may be. I don't believe for a moment it was just a bunch of dumb hicks who didn't know any better than to serve God. I believe that within this 7,000 people who had chosen to serve God faithfully, I think they would have come from all walks of life, from all sorts of backgrounds. Here's the thing. We don't know one thing about them, but God knew everything about them. And the beauty of it is this. Though you and I don't know anything about them, The fact that God knew everything about them is the only thing that mattered. Does this make sense? The only thing that mattered is that God knew their name, God knew their location, God knew what they were doing, God knew what they were involved in, and most importantly, God knew of their faithfulness to Him, regardless of what the rest of the society, or regardless of what the culture around them was doing. So they may be no names to us, they may may, may be people that we know nothing about, But God knew everything about them, and in the end, that is the only thing that mattered, is that God knew their name rather than you and I knowing their name. Now, why is that important? It's important for this reason. I know I've mentioned this before, but I want us to dwell on this again for just a moment. That in this world, there are still names that are known by the majority of people. You know this, right? There are are names of politicians that everybody knows their name and something about them. There are names of actors and actresses, and it seems as though everyone knows something about them. There are artists, there are musicians, there are, there are so many people, athletes, whatever it may be, so many people, and they are a household name, and they have notoriety, and they have, they have popularity, they have all these things associated with them, and then you have everyone else. Right? And who are we amongst? We are amongst the everyone else's. People do not hear our names and say, oh yeah, I know them. Now, maybe in a you know, small area that might be the case, but, but you get outside of Pampa and you get outside our little circle and, and, and what's going to be the case? Somebody will say something like this, hey, you know, you know the name Kyle Osfelt, right? They don't say, oh, well, sure, isn't he the pastor down at Grace Baptist Church? No, they say something like this. What was that name again? Kyle Osfeld. I've said this before. Roosevelt? No, Osfeld. Osfeld? How do you spell that? It's a long ordeal. 
See, I even have a weird name that you would think might give me some notoriety or some name recognition. I don't have that. You know what I am amongst? I am amongst the everyone else's. So let me remind you who you are amongst. You too are amongst the everyone else's. I'm not being rude. I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. But nobody knows you exist outside of a very small circle of people. Most of us are small fish no matter what pond we're in. We don't have name recognition anywhere we go, really. So most of us will live and we will die with most people not knowing anything about us. But we serve an omniscient God. So what does he know? He knows everything. And so if God knows everything, then what does that mean as it relates to me and as it relates to you? It means this, is that though nobody else in the world may know who you are, guess who knows who you are? God knows who you are. Like David, I could say something like this, God, you know when I lie down and when I rise up. I don't know about you, but to me that's encouraging. God knows what time I laid down last night and God knows when I drifted off into sleep and God knows when the alarm went off this morning and woke me up and got me out of bed and got the day going. Listen, God knows exactly where I am and like David, I can say, Lord, you know when I lie down and Lord, you know when I rise up. Like Job, I could say this, God, I don't always know where you're at, but you always know where I'm at. God, if I move here, you're aware of it. God, if I go here, you're aware of it. God, there is no place that I cannot go that you are not aware. Listen, friends, the world does not know I exist as a whole, but God knows exactly where I'm at. I may just be one person, but I'm more important than many sparrows. That may not sound real exciting, but I'm glad God sees some value to me. He considers to me important considers me to be important. It's, it's an encouraging thing with this omniscient God that we serve. God is so concerned with me, and God is so consumed with me that He knows the number of hair on my head right now. That's a God who is taking great interest in me. And I'm not the unique one here. The same is true of every one of you. 
God loves you so much and God is so aware of you. He knows when you lie down and when you rise up. He knows the direction that your life is headed and the direction that your life is taking. And God knows what is happening here and what's happening here and what's happening here and what's taking place here. Listen, God is fully aware of all of that. And God values you far more than any number of birds or any kind of creation that exists. And listen, God is so consumed with you. He's keeping track of the number of hair on your head and every other detail of your life. Friends, if He cares about your hair, don't you know He cares about every other aspect of your life? I may be a nobody, and I may have zero name recognition. I may not mean anything to the majority of this world, but I serve a God in heaven who is fully aware of my existence. He is fully aware of your existence. He is fully aware of every aspect and element and detail of your life. We may be among the 7,000, but God is aware of the 7,000. So can I remind you of this this morning? God knows your heart for Him. That's an encouraging thing if you're serving the Lord like you ought. Now, if you're not serving the Lord as you ought, that ought to be something that gets your attention and arrests your thoughts for a little bit to to think that, wow, I can't fool God. I, I can't trick God. I may be able to deceive others, but I can't deceive God. But I want you to think about this. God knows that you are faithful provided you're faithful. So you and I may go through our days, you and I may go through every season of our life and never be known by anyone. And what we've done and what we've accomplished and what we've endeavored to do for the things of God, it may not ever be known this side of heaven. But you know what's wonderful to remember? That in heaven there is a God who is fully aware of everything we're striving to do to serve and to please Him. When you took time out of your schedule this week to spend time in prayer, it was not wasted or lost on God. That one did not get lost with all the busyness of everything else going on. You know what? God was aware. When you took time this week to spend it in the Word and to say, Lord, I I need to hear from you. And and even if I don't get much from it this week, I still want to be faithful to do it. When you when listen, when you disciplined yourself to take the time to be in the Word, God saw that little step of faithfulness. Does that not encourage us and, and, and kind of bring a smile to our face? Like it was worth it. Now it won't be written in the history books that I read my Bible this week and I spent time in prayer, but God knows because God knows everything. Whenever I stepped back from my problems and said, okay, God, I'm going to turn this over to you and God, I'm going to release this to you and and by faith, I'm going to trust you to do what I cannot do. Listen, when we made that step of faith to trust God in this circumstance, God saw it because God sees the actions of even the unknown and He knows what the unknown are doing. 
Whenever the Holy Spirit spoke and prompted us and convicted us and, and said, hey, don't say that, hey, don't do that, hey, don't participate in that, and we yielded to the leading of the Holy Spirit and the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives, listen, when we were obedient, though no one else may have taken note, for lack of better words, God said, hey, write that down. Because I saw it. I'm aware of it. They didn't bend. They didn't kiss. They didn't bow. They didn't kneel the knee. They did not compromise. They did not sell out. I know what they've done because God could say, I know it all. I really do want this message and I really do want this sermon to be personal for every one of us, to be reminded. We may not be anyone to very many people. But we can't afford to get this martyr complex. I'm the only one. No, no, no. Hold on, hold on, hold on. There are probably some others out there who are just as faithful, who are just as dedicated, who are just as serious about their walk with God as Elijah was, as you are, etc. But we also need to not lose sight of this fact. That it may not be us who's ever written about, who's ever talked about, whoever gets any kind of public notoriety. It may not ever be that somebody stands and says, this person was the blessing to me that I needed. That person may not ever sing your praises to anyone else or, or whatever the situation may be that you long for. But we have got to be reminded of this. Whenever I live and act in obedience to God's will, He takes note. And that really is the only thing that matters. Because one day we'll stand before the Lord and we'll give an account for our lives. And the only one we'll stand before is God. And if He knows, then it doesn't really matter if anyone else knew. I want us to leave this morning encouraged continue serving, continue being faithful, continue to walk, continue to do what you're supposed to be doing because God sees, God knows. He's not missing out on any of it. And in the end, as I've already said, that's all that matters. And when you stand before him, you'll be glad that you did what you ought to do, whether anyone else ever knew it or not. Let's all stand this morning and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, I come to you this morning. I pray that you'd help us to be encouraged by the fact that you are an omniscient, all-knowing God. As I said a moment ago, that is really a source of encouragement when you think of all the ways that that can be applied. But when we stop and think that you know everything about us, regardless of how insignificant we may be to this world. It's an encouragement. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us to use that to be a challenge to us individually, to just be faithful, to just keep doing what we know we're supposed to be doing. And, God, if by chance there's someone in here today, they'd have to admit that you also know that they're not living right, that they're not where they're supposed to be. I pray that it would challenge them to get in their spiritual lives where they need to be, so that they might just be obedient for when they stand before you. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.